Welcome to the Torah Talks Podcast with Rabbi Yaakov Laredo. Rabbi Laredo is the director of a Torah center which inspires Jews of all ages and backgrounds to develop and expand themselves through the study of Torah. We focus on three main areas, discovering Torah, connecting to God, and engaging with other Jews. In this podcast, Rabbi Laredo will discuss the Book of Esther in 11 classes. Rabbi Laredo's number one goal is to provide you with deep, clear, concise, and applicable Torah material, helping you become the best you. We are starting the sixth chapter, and just to review what we learned in chapter 5, chapter 5 was basically the queen's first private banquet between her, Achashverosh, and Haman. And she then had a big request to ask the king. And she told him, you know what, I want to ask it tomorrow, again with a private banquet between the three of us, the same Esther, Achashverosh, and and Haman. So t- today we're learning the sixth chapter, and now we are learning about that night, as we're going to start Balayla Hahu, as well as the beginning of that day. In the seventh chapter, we actually read about the second day's banquet and Haman's eventual execution. So before we start the, the chapter, it's uh, nice to note that there are a special tradition when it comes to the reading of this verse. The Maharil and the Elia Rabbah, and so is the tradition in Ashkenazic communities, that this first verse, the Chazan, the uh, person who is reading the Megillah, does read this in a, lo- in a louder or in a different tune because it's the beginning of the Geula, of the, of the redemption. The Abu Draham, as well as um, others, bring down that there are different times in the Megillah that the verses are not only read by the reader of the Megillah, but also by the listeners, like the whole congregation all together. In, in uh, Ashkenazic communities, there are four times that this takes place. It is by um, Ishihudi, which is in chapter 2, verse 5. Then there's also um, in chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. And then the fourth time is the last line in the, in the book. The Sephardic tradition is that also this verse of Balayla Ahu is also mentioned by the whole congregation. Again, these are the four verses of Geulah, the four verses of the redemption. So they are mentioned out loud uh, by, by, uh, by everybody. So let's start the Pasuk. Balayla Hahu. It was that very night. Which night was it? Well, Rashi in the Talmud tells us that this was the eve of the 16th of Nisan, which according to the chronology of how we're learning, was exactly when it took place. This was actually the second night of Passover. What happens? So the king's sleep was tremendously disturbed. He couldn't sleep. There is a dispute. Who are we talking about? Well, the Torah Tamima says we're talking about Malkoshel Olam. We're speaking about God. That God, so to say, couldn't speak. Uh, sorry, God, so to say, couldn't sleep. And the reason that he couldn't sleep was because the Jewish people were 
tremendously invested in their fasting and in their prayers that God could no longer sleep, in quotations, or be silent to answering their pleads of prayer and help against this uh, tremendous and horrible decree. The Talmud, as well as Rashi, say no, it's not talking about God, that God couldn't sleep. Rather, it's really speaking about Achashverosh. Achashverosh himself's own um, sleep that evening was disturbed. And the reason why he couldn't sleep is because he thought to himself, why is Esther having a private banquet with her husband, me, as well as Haman, the great minister? What's going on? Are they planning some type of conspiracy theory are they trying to plan to team up and to and to kill me he didn't know what exactly was going on he was suspecting that they were planning something against them the two of them together so he thought to himself listen to how fascinating this is he thought to himself wait a minute there was some time ago around four or five years ago that there were two hoodlums who were planning something against me who was that big Dan and Teresh. And then someone told me what was going on, their conspiracy theory or their plan. Why is no one telling me now? So he thought to himself, who is the person who told me that story of Big Tan and Teresh? Who's the person who saved me? He didn't remember that it was Mordechai. And that's why the Talmud says at that moment, he says to his, to his servants around, bring me my diary so I can see who it was. Maybe I didn't pay that person back for the, for the loving kindness, the chesed that he did for me, and that's why he's not telling me now. Maybe that person is an insider and would know this, but he's not telling me because I didn't reward him last time. That's the way the Talmud, that's the way Rashi um, learns it. There's another interpretation. The Midrash says that Achashrosh was having a really, really bad nightmare. And his nightmare was that he was sleeping and... Haman was coming on top of him with a, with a drawn sword and he was coming to behead Achashverosh and take his crown and put it on his head. So Achashverosh is thinking, wow, maybe Haman is really not a, not a good person. Maybe he is trying to take my, my kingdom away from me. Now again, uh, we see this also by Paro that kings do have special dreams, dreams not only on their behalf, but on behalf of the kingdom, as Pyro did in the time of, of Joseph. So he definitely took his dream seriously, and he was very worried about that. The, there's another interpretation. The Shireh Bina says that there was actually, um, God sent a, an angel to Achashverosh and looked at that angel and said, and that angel looked at Achashverosh and said, what? The Jewish people are now decreed to be to be annihilated and to be wiped out. And this king, this good-for-nothing king, is having a good night's sleep and he's snoring well? No way. So the, 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 the angel comes and pushes Achashverosh off his bed. He does so and Achashverosh gets up and he gets on his bed. The, king, the, the, the angel does this, the Shairabina explains, 365 times. So how could Achashverosh have a good night's sleep? Can you imagine every minute or every 30 seconds you're, you're, you're rolling off, you're falling off your bed, you're not knowing what's going on. Now why 365? So two interpretations he gives. One is that either that is the same number of um, advisors Haman had. Remember we, we learned last week or the week before that Haman had six, uh, 365 advisors, one for every day of the week. Uh, sorry, one for every day of the year. Or um, we can say... Uh, 
365 goes corresponding to the days of the year and alluding to if the Jewish people are wiped out and that means no more Torah is studied then the world will go back to complete destruction and you will not have any more years to come not you or for the whole world and that's why he was pushed over um, 365 times and the Malach last thing he says is the Malach was telling Achashverosh you ingrate you ingrate as we say in Hebrew kfui tova, kfui tova. Mr. Ingrate get up and go display thanks display your gratitude to the individual who saved you by last conspiracy against you and that's why he called for his his opening one more interpretation is the Midrash Lekachtov says that Achashrosh thought he was worried that maybe he was poisoned. Maybe by the meal of Esther he was poisoned or they gave him some type of stomach virus. So he called for his chefs and he was going to kill them. However, because uh, what, what, are you, what are you trying to, to hurt me or to give me an upset stomach? So they came back and they said, my, my king, you're the only one who's not feeling well. You're the only one who has a stomach virus. You're the only one who has an issue. No one else, not Esther and not, and not Haman, have any issues. So he let them, he let them be. Um, the Ma'am Loez says this was the first time that he was experiencing insomnia. And that's why he was very uh, worried about what is going on. Normally he went to sleep and he had a good night's sleep and he had never had any issues. So these are all interpretations to what exactly the disrupting of his, uh, of his sleep actually was. So what does he do? Vayomer, he calls out and says, He says, bring me my royal diary. And it was read in front of the king. So Rashi explains that it was a common practice for a king to, whenever they could not sleep, they would have their servants or their, their, their slaves around them tell them either stories or, or speak to them to sleep or, or just, you know, bore them, so to say, Till they could go back to sleep. What's more boring than than reading the the diary that that you that you wrote, anyways? So that's how Rashi explains it. The Ibn Ezra says Achashverosh had something completely else going on in his mind. He thought that maybe he is being punished that he cannot sleep, or that he's having this dream, or however else you wanted to understand it based on the interpretations. Maybe the king is he himself is being punished because he made a vow and he did not complete it, meaning he made a vow to repay somebody and he didn't complete it. So that's why he's like, quickly, let me let me uh, open up my diary and see if I owe anybody something and then finally I'll be able to go to sleep. The Midrash Talpiot says that the verse doesn't say korim, that it was read to um, Achashverosh, rather it says nikraim that it was read on its own. So what does that teach us? That teaches us that the diary actually was reading itself, meaning it wasn't that someone actually read it, rather the book was opened and then like, I guess vocally, the words were coming out of the diary and penetrating Achashverosh's ears that he heard what was going on. Because again, or else it would have said Vayu Korim. It says Nikraim, meaning it was being read on its own. Second verse, Pasuk Bet. Vaimatse 
חטוב אשר הגיד מרדכי על בקטנה ותרש, שנס הריסי המלך משומרי הסף, אשר ביקשו לשלוח יד במלך אחשוורוש. So I just read the whole פסוק, but we're going to dissect it. So first, he found a special um, entry in the diary. Now, what did he find? It does not say כתב, a writing, rather it says he, it's, it's found כתוב, as it's being written. So the Talmud says that the, the scribe of, of, of the diary of the king was actually one of the sons of Haman. His name was Shimshai. Shimshai obviously was a Jew hater. And what he was doing, he, the king said, open to a random page. So the page is opened and quickly Shimshai, Haman's son, sees that it's speaking about Mordechai. So what was he doing? He was quickly erasing and scratching out that part so he could skip it and read something else. As, while he was erasing, Malach Gavriel was coming and he was rewriting it so that it would not be erased. That's why it says katuv, meaning it's being written, not katav or kitav as it was written already. It's being written as it is being taken place. Um, a, a way to hint to that is if you take the words katuv asher higid Mordechai al... If you take those words in the verse, it, the last letters of those five words are, the last letters of those five words are the same numerical value as Gavriel. Okay? So that is a hint that it was Gavriel. The Yalkut Shimoni says it wasn't Gavriel, rather it was Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu Hanavi was the one who was, who was writing it. The Ma'am Loez gives another uh, um, interpretation, and we said this back in chapter 2, that the... That this entry in the diary, the king's scribes did not want to write in, and it was actually written divinely. God Himself wrote it in the king's diary so that it would never be it would never be forgotten. Nichtav um, me'elav. It was written on its own. So we have the different interpretations of 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 ways that this actually did not get left out of the king's diary. So Asher Gidle Asher Gid Mordechai that uh, Mordechai told him. So the Al-Sheikh says that really Mordechai told Esther what the conspiracy theory was from Bigtan and Teresh, and then Esther told, Esther told um, the king Achashverosh. However, in the diary, it was not recorded that Mordechai told Esther who told the king because the diary didn't want to give any extra credit to Esther just in case she would try to rise up to some type of fame or some type of power so it was trying to diminish the uh, that that reward that's possible to go to her on the contrary back back when we learned uh, about that story in chapter 2 we see that uh, um, that uh, Mordechai specifically wanted to tell Esther to tell Mordechai in to tell to because he Mordechai wanted Esther to look good in the eyes of the king at the beginning of their marriage and as we said it also brings the gula when you say something in the name of of someone else and he was trying to quickly bring uh, to to get to end this exile and bring a complete salvation the midrash also says and we learned this back in chapter one that Achashverosh did four great things when he started his kingship. 
One of the four we said was, he didn't act right away on anything, rather he wrote everything down. He had a scribe write everything down in his diary in order to either punish people for what they did wrong to him in the future or to reward them. So this is now taking place. Almost five years later, finally the king sees what he wrote about Mordechai, that Mordechai saved his life and he didn't repay him. So now he was coming to repay him. Something interesting which, uh, which screams out to anyone who reads the verse is, back in chapter 1 it said, or sorry, back in chapter 2 it said, Biktan Vateresh. Here it says, Biktana. There's an Aleph at the end of Biktan's name. What's going on? So, three different commentaries all say the same thing. It's a beautiful interpretation. Listen to the following. It's the Midrash Talpiot, as well as the Alshech, as well as the Manot HaLevi, all say as follows to explain that... The scribes, again, of the king, Haman's son, Shimshai, he really did not want to make Mordechai look good in any way possible. So his intention was to write Biktan or Teresh. Biktan or Teresh. Meaning both of the, these servants of the king were executed by royal decree because Mordechai said one of them, not both of them, one of them was planning to poison the king. It turns out that Mordechai did not supply, if it was written that way, that Mordechai did not supply a complete story. And because of Mordechai, one of the two of the king's um, servants was killed unjustly. So he was intending to take away part of the complete merit that Mordechai deserved by writing Bigtan or Teresh, not Bigtan and Teresh. So what did God do, they explain? God said, instead of having it Bigtan or Teresh, God took the Aleph from the O and put it, made it stuck to the word Bigtan. And he took the Vav of, Teresh, of, of the O and he put it to the beginning of Teresh to say Veteresh, bringing back Mordechai's complete uh, merit. So really his name was Bigtan, not Bigtana. But the O, the Or, which would diminish Mordechai's um, reward, God split in the, in the, in the, scr- in the writing of the, of the diary that the Aleph would go in the beginning of the Bigtan and the Vav in, in the, sorry, at the end of Bigtan and the Vav would go at the beginning of Teresh. So now you might ask, well, Bigtan is written with a Nun Sofit. That doesn't make sense then. How are you going to have a Nun Sofit and an Aleph attached to it? So it explains that um, when, uh, when, when Hebrew words are written in other languages, there's no end letters. So obviously the king's diary was not written in Hebrew. So since there's no Otiot Sofiot, there's no end letters in, in other languages, especially whether they were in Persian or in Babylonian or Aramaic, whatever language they spoke, um, therefore, it, does, it is not a question on how would there be a nun sofit with an aleph attached right, right after it. Um, now, these two shenesiri say, "Melech mishomre asaf asher bikshu lishloch yad b'melech hashvrosh." These two um, uh, servants of the king who tried to uh, kill the king and poison the king. Again, the king was saved by. Uh, Mordechai. Now the Malbim says, it's a long Malbim, I'll say it briefly, the Malbim gives a fascinating insight. He says, we never see this concept of, um, the concept of Divrei Hayamim, sorry, Sefer Hazichronot Divrei Hayamim, as we saw in in, in the first verse. What does this mean? Sefer Hazichronot, the diary, Divrei Hayamim, that the, the recounting of the days. He says that's a very 
peculiar name for a book, and we don't see that type of book anywhere else in Tanakh, at least not the two together. So he explains, there was really two books, okay? There was a first book, which was the main history book of the king, which recounted objectively all of the occurrences the king went through in his life. Now, this book also had an index to it. This book with the index and the historical recountings of the king was not in the king's possession, meaning the king had access to it, but it wasn't the king who, who was the one who dictated to write it. Rather, it was in the hands of the scribes, i.e. Haman's sons. They were the ones writing it. The king had another book, so that's the first book. That's Sefer, that's Divir Hayamim, sorry. That's the Divir Hayamim. There's another book, and that is the king's personal diary. The king's personal diary was called Sefer Hazichronot Divrei Hayamim. That was his personal diary. His personal diary, he was the one who dictated to the scribe to exactly write his, you know, his notes. They didn't have a notepad, they didn't have post-its, they didn't have uh, Siri or your Google app or whatever you use to make you reminders. He had a, a human being, a slave, uh, do, it, do it for him. So the 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 Malbim explains that in the book written by Haman's son, the main history book, Mordechai's name was not recounted in there. Really, Haman's son, Shimsha, wrote that Haman was the one who saved Achashverosh almost five years ago, not Mordechai. That that would be what would be recounted in history to make Haman nice and famous. However, the personal diary of the king, which the king asked his scribe to, to, to write, had Mordechai's name in there. And that was the book that was being presented and read to him at this moment. The personal diary of the king. The king forgot about it because it was written and it was never looked at again. And in the, the, histor the historical books, it was already Haman's name that was written. So the king didn't know who to pay back. There was a certain point where he said, someone saved me from those two good-for-nothings that tried to poison me. He didn't remember who it was. He quickly looked in this history book. It was recorded as Haman did it. So that's why Gidel HaMelechet Haman, at the beginning of chapter 3, that's why Haman was raised up in all this greatness and glory. Because it must be the same person who gave me the idea to kill Vashti and to get a new wife, Esther. He's probably the same one who gave me the good idea and, and, and saved me from those to Bigtan and Teresh, the two, the two servants trying to poison him. So that's, that's what's coming up over that. That is what the Nablam explains as Sefer HaZichronot Divrami. It was the king's personal diary that everyone was trying to hide away from him. We're moving into to verse 3. Now, when it's being read to him, he asks his servant who's reading it to him that... What was done for Mordechai? What honor, Yekar is what honor, and what Gedulan, what greatness was done for Mordechai? The Maharal explains, Yekar was um, honor, momentary honor, meaning what was done for him at that moment for Mordechai, how was he repaid? And Gedulah is long, like, um, how do we say, like a long-term 
benefit or a long-term um, reward? What short, what immediate and what long-term reward was done for Mordechai? So, So the king's servants which were with him, they answer, Nothing was done for Mordechai. He wasn't repaid. So the Talmud says, Don't think that they loved Mordechai. Believe me, the servants of the king didn't love Mordechai, but they hated Haman. So because they hated Haman, they said the truth. They said that Mordechai was not repaid at all. The Chida explains that they really hated Haman and Mordechai. And the proof that they hated Mordechai is they, only, they did not call him by his name. They said, with him nothing was done. He could have, they could have said, to Mordechai nothing was done. Or even better, davar is something like, like something. Something is not a, uh, a very nice word. Rather, they could have said, nothing was done. None said nothing, meaning no honor or no greatness, no yekar ugdula was done for Mordechai. And since they just used the word something, and they didn't mention his name, the Chida says that, he, that, he, um, that they didn't like Mordechai too much either. The Mamloa says at the time that these... these um, that these servants were reading the personal diary to the king, at this moment, they heard Haman walking in. And because they heard Haman walking in, they didn't mention Mordechai's name. They just said, Lo with him, anything, instead of with using the word Mordechai, the name Mordechai, because they didn't want Haman to pick up what they were talking about. So they're trying to keep it uh, anonymous. The fourth verse, Vayomer HaMelech, Mi so they hear someone coming up, they hear someone in the courtyard, and the king asks, who's in the, who's in the courtyard? This goes based on what we said that the king dreamt, he, according to the opinion that he just woke up from his nightmare, that Haman was coming to behead him and take his crown. He was, he was worried, he was flattered. Who's coming? Who's coming? And then when they told him that it's Haman... He's like, ah, my dream must be true. Haman is really good for nothing. He's selfish and he's trying to take my position. Then, So Haman's coming to the exterior courtyard, the outer courtyard of the king, to tell the king, to hang Mordechai on the tree that he prepared for him. The Talmud says that... Um, and the commentaries on the Talmud, specifically the Torah Evan, say that at that moment, the decree was settled that Haman would be hung on the very tree that he prepared for Mordechai. The words, Asher Hichin Lo. It was prepared for him. Who's him? Not Mordechai. Him is really back on Haman. The fifth verse, Vayomru and the servants of the king tell the king, They tell him, You know who's in the, in the, in the courtyard? It's Haman. The king says, Bring him here. Let's see what he wants. Vav, the sixth verse. So the king requests from Haman a piece of advice. His advice is, What would you do to somebody that the king wants to repay in reward, that he wants to give him a special honor. The words chafetz bikaro, that he especially wants to honor. What would you do? So the, the Gaon Mivilna, the Gra, as well as the Malbim, both say that two, uh, three verses ago, in chapter 3, the king asks his servants, 
what was done, Yekar Ugdula, what honor and what greatness was done for Mordechai. However, this time when he's asking Haman, he's only asking Yekar, the honor. He's not bringing in the Gedula, the greatness. Why not? So they explain that Haman was thinking that he was being asked on himself. How could the king honor him? So the king omitted the word Gedula, greatness, because Haman already was raised by the king to the highest level as the greatest of all of the ministers. So if Hashverosh thought himself, if I use the words honor and greatness, honor and being raised Gedula, then Haman's going to know I'm not talking about him. He's going to maybe hold back on what he wants. On, on He might think I'm speaking about Mordechai or someone else, so he might not give me his full opinion on what honor should be given to somebody who did a favor for the king. So therefore he omitted the word Gidullah because Haman was looking for more honor. So he only used the word Yakar, meaning honor, because Haman was looking for more honor, but he omitted the greatness because then Haman would know that that doesn't apply to him. Vayomer Haman belibos. So Haman says to himself, and the Talmud says, this is how we know that the Megillah was written with Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration, because how did the writers of the Megillah and Sheikh Nesdagdullah know what Haman was thinking in his mind or thinking in his heart? So this is the proof in the Talmud, one of the proofs of the Talmud uh, on page 7, Masechet Megillah, that say that the the Megillah was written with divine inspiration. So the Vayomer Haman Haman says to himself, Who could the king possibly, imaginably, want to give more honor and greatness to? He thought to himself. So Zayin, the seventh verse, Vayomer Haman al-Amelech. So Haman tells the king, So this is what I would do if I would have to honor somebody who did something great to the king. The Malbim says that the intention of Haman was to um, have the king display his the, the honor and greatness owed to whoever this individual was. And again, he thought it was himself. So, Chet, the eighth verse. Yavi'u levush malchut So, the king should bring to this man, or it should be brought to this man that you want to honor, the clothes of the king, not only royal clothes, royal clothes of the king that the king wore. Not only that he wore, the Pirkei de Beliezer says, it should be the king's clothes that he wore when he was inaugurated and instituted as king. So it was like the king's clothes. It was the one from years ago. And that was the, the clothes that sh- th- this man should wear. It was obviously a very special relic, a special item. And also the horse that the king rides. So different opinions. Is it the one that he rides now or is it the one that he rode when he was instituted as, as king, if it was alive or not? Okay, And also the king's crown should be placed on this individual's head. So basically you're becoming king. You're wearing the king's clothes, you're riding on his horse, and you're wearing his crown all at once. Now, before we continue to the next verse, Rashi and the Al-Sheikh both explain that at the time that Haman mentions the king's crown, he realized he went a little overboard. Because as soon as he mentioned that this person should have the king's crown on his head, Achashverosh's face turned red. And his face turned, and he wasn't looking too friendly to Haman. 
So therefore, in the next verse and in the subsequent ones, there's no more mention of Haman, by Haman, of the crown. Achashverosh tells him, yeah, take my crown and give it to Mordechai. Let him wear it. But Haman saw the feeling of the king when he mentioned his crown, and he stopped mentioning crown. No, crown is a bad word in this, in this conversation. It's a dirty word in this conversation. It's going to get me into trouble. So he didn't mention the word crown any longer. There's two opinions of where this crown should be placed. The Pashut Pshat, the simple explanation is according to Rashi that should be placed on the person that's being honored. However, the Ibn Ezra says something very interesting. Don't, don't, you know, I couldn't come up with this with myself. He says the crown should be placed on the horse's head. <laughs> now why? Because I guess in their tradition, in their royal tradition, that not only a horse that a king rode on was, was consecrated specifically for the king, but there was a special greatness and honor to a horse that the king rode on while wearing the king's crown. Again, it's, it's ridiculous, but, but that, was their, that, was their, that was their tradition. And it was a known thing that that type of horse that was ridden on by the king and had the king's crown on it at that moment, no one else, no other servant or anyone else in the whole kingdom could ride that horse. And that was the horse Haman wanted to ride on. So Hashrash set him up. Perfect. Do all this for uh, Mordechai. We're going to soon see. Now, Pasuk Tet 9. Vinaton alevush vehasus. And now take all of this, your clothes, and the, and the horse. He excludes the, the crown, right? As we just said. Al yad ish misare hamelech apartemim. It should be brought by the partemim. Remember, we learned back in chapter 1 the partemim are the noblemen which institute who the king is. All the way back in the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 3, we had the word partemim, and on that the Midrash says the partemim was like the board of, 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 of individuals, of noblemen, who elect and who institute who the king is. So uh, Haman wanted to be brought by those noble people all of this, these great things. And dress the man, Asher ha-melech that the king wants to honor. Virkivu alasus asus And he should be ridden and brought out and displayed in the whole city. Vikarau lefanav. And everyone should call in front of this man. Kacha. Oh no, and it should be called in front of him. Meaning someone that's pulling him should say, Kacha yase. This is what is being done to the man. Laish asher To the man that the king truly desires and wants to give him very special honor. Um, Rabbi Meir ben Itzchak Arama also wrote a, wrote a commentary on the Megillah, says that Haman was kind of getting ahead of himself because he thought it was being done for him. And he sensed that obviously besides for the mention of the crown, but all of this whole uh, display that he wanted was a little, a little, he overstepped his bounds. So at the end, he adds in over there that someone in the front should be calling out that this is what the king does to someone the king wants to honor. Meaning, it's apparent that the person being pulled on this horse is not becoming the king. Rather, he's being honored by the king and it should be mentioned out loud to to everybody. So that is, um, that is something specific that uh, the... That the that that, Ahash, that that Haman intended when he when he said that someone should be calling out his name. 
Next, verse 10. Vayomer hamelech lehaman. The king tells Haman himself, Maher, quickly! Kach et Take the garments, vetasus, and the horse, kasher dibarta, and everything that you said, vasechen lemordechai hayehudi hayoshev b'shar hamelech. And do so for Mordechai the Jew, who's sitting at the gate of the king. Al tapel davar mikol asher dibarta. Don't omit anything that you mentioned. So there's what to say on this. First of all, why was Mordechai, why was Achashverosh in such a rush? Why maher? Quickly do it. So, two different interpretations. The Yosef Lekach writes that they had a date. Achashverosh had a date with Esther and Haman at the banquet. He didn't want to be late for the banquet. He knew that she had something special to ask for him, from him. So he didn't want to delay the banquet. And therefore... He made it very quick. Quickly, Haman, go do what you have to do right now. The Al-Sheikh says, um, sorry, the Yosef Lekach explains that he was worried, Achashosh was worried, maybe Esther's going to bring up and ask, maybe Esther's grand question for the banquet was, what was done for Mordechai for saving your life? And he would be left dumbfounded, not able to answer. So he wanted Haman to quickly do this for Mordechai right now, so that if at the meal, when the three of them are there, Esther asks, what did you do for Mordechai? He'll say, aha, funny that you ask. Today I asked, I, I, I made sure that he was repaid with bounty and glory and, and amazing things. And he thought to himself, maybe this is specifically what Esther's asking, because that's what I dreamt about last night. Or, that's what was read to me, better yet. That was read to me when I asked my servant to open up my personal diary. And therefore, he wanted to quickly answer it. Another interpretation that Al-Sheikh gives is that Achashverosh wanted to make publicly known to the whole city how much he really cares and he repays those who do favors for him. Again, he was worried that Haman and, Achash, and, and Esther were planning something against him. And he was saying, why is the person who didn't tell me last time or someone like him telling me what they're planning? And he was very worried about that. So he wanted to publicly display before the meal, because he was scared something was going to happen at the meal. He wanted to before the meal publicly display, look at what honor I give to someone who does me a favor. Now anybody who knows any, any, any details... Please come and tell me, because you will be royally repaid for that for that uh, for that great thing. Specifically, he wanted Haman to be the one who goes and, and pulls Achashverosh. That's a good question. Why did he want Haman? The Al Sheikh explains because he wanted to lower Haman's self esteem and lower Haman's view in the whole country, in the whole city. Everyone was very scared and petrified of Haman. Haman was just raised from the bottom to the top. He was able to get the, the king to make a, a horrible decree against the Jews. Everyone was very scared of Haman. So Achashverosh wanted to deflate his ego a little, especially after that dream that he had last night. The Midrash says, when the, the verse says, Kasher dibarta, as you said, Achashverosh says, as you said, Haman, make sure you do everything. The Midrash says that he wanted to make sure that Haman brings his crown as well. Kasher dibarta, as you said with the crown, make sure you bring that crown as well. The Talmud says that Haman argues back to Achashverosh and says, 
my king, we don't need to do everything I just said for Mordechai. I mean, <laughs> it was a good idea that you asked me what we should do for someone so honorable, but I didn't really mean what I said. You know, let's just give him a country. Let's give him a city. Let's give him a, let's give him a, you know, a bridge or, or a river so he could collect some taxes on it. We don't need to give him everything I just mentioned. And then, uh, uh, then uh, Hashrosh says, no, 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 like you said. The Mam Loez says that the nature of a person when they're being forced to do something is that they're not doing it wholeheartedly. And they, they seem to skimp out on details and on the important parts. So Hashrosh knew Haman would definitely not be happy to carry out his, his idea of what honor should be given to to his arch enemy, Mordechai, being Haman's arch enemy. So Achashverosh says, make sure everything you said, you do. And that was the Mamluas' explanation. Now, for a moment, I want to just pay attention to what the Talmud says uh, on page 16 in the Gemara and um, in the Talmud. It says that Aman asks, asks Achashverosh, which Mordechai? Hashverosh says, well, the, Mordechai the Jew. That's why it says, Mordechai HaYehudi. And then, HaYoshev B'Shar HaMelech. So Haman asks him, well, there's many Mordechai that are Jews. Which one are you talking about? Like he's trying to play a wise guy. Hashverosh says, the Jewish Mordechai HaYoshev B'Shar HaMelech that sits by the king's gate and courtyard. You know who I'm talking about. Haman says, eh, you know, like I said, maybe just give him give him a city, give him a river. He doesn't deserve all that. Achashverosh tells him, no, 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 no. Al tapel davar mikol asher dibarta. Don't leave out one detail of anything that you said. So Haman takes everything that was uh, was told to him to take, the clothes, the, the horse, the crown, and he goes to Mordechai. And where does he find Mordechai? in the yeshiva, in the kolel, and he was teaching Torah. What was he teaching about? Again, they were in the middle of the exile between the two temples, and they were hoping that the 70 years would be finished soon, which it really was coming up, and they were learning the laws of the service in the temple, specifically the mitzvah of kmitzah. The mitzvah of kmitzvah is a special amount of flour that was given with the flour offering. And the way to calculate the flour offering is, if you see my fingers, is you wouldn't grab a handful like this with all five fingers. Only the three middle fingers, you would go and you'd pick up like this with your pinky and your thumb sticking out. That's the amount of flour that was taken and brought um, for the flour offering. So Mordechai was displaying this and teaching them this, this because again, Mordechai lived <laughs> with both temples. He lived during the first temple, so he saw it, he lived it, and he was teaching, I guess, his students who didn't how it will be done, Bezrat Hashem, when the second temple was being built. So as soon as, the Talmud says, as soon as Mordechai sees Haman coming, he got scared. He says, he's coming with a horse. He's probably coming to kill me. So he told his students, guys, scram quickly, get out of here. You know, let me, if he wants to take me, let him take me alone. Don't let him, don't let him hurt everybody. So at that moment, Mordechai takes a talit, he wraps himself in a talit, he stands up and he prays to Hashem. He prays for help, that Haman doesn't hurt him or do anything wrong to him. In the meantime, while Haman was waiting around, he asks the students, he says, what were you guys learning about? I see this weird finger, thumb, and pinky sticking out. Like, what, what, are, you, what are you guys learning about? 
he said they they told him they told Haman that oh we were learning about that special flower offering in the time of the temple that was done and that hopefully will be done again and Haman said ay 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 your Jews your small you Jews are so powerful your small amount of flour that you take not not even with a full fistful like a half fistful that you bring as a sacrifice to to your God is more than the tens of thousands of silver coins that I that I pledged against you to the king. That amount of flour, which is worth almost nothing, monetarily, is worth so much more than all of the silver I pledged against the Jewish people. So Haman is waiting around for, Achash, for, uh, for, uh, for Mordechai to finish up his prayer. It didn't disturb him. He was on walking on eggshells now, right? And Mordechai sees him, and he tells him, Haman, nice to see you. How's it going? Haman says, come, come, I gotta fulfill, you know, enthusiastically, but not, I gotta, I gotta ride, I gotta give you a, a joy ride around the city. I gotta, I gotta display, what? Yes, I gotta put you on, this is the king repaying you for saving his life. And he dresses him, and he puts his, the crown on him, and he sit, makes him sit on the, on the, on the horse. Now, Haman Sorry, Mordechai had a difficult time getting on the horse because he's been fasting for three days and he's been praying very hard, so he was physically weak. So Mordechai says, come, come, Haman, help me up. So when he helps him up, his final push before he gets on, he gives him a kick in the head and he falls on the, on, on the floor. And Haman is like, you're not supposed to. It says in your Torah, I'm going to read the verse for you. It says in your Torah, when your enemy falls, don't be happy. I see you have a smirk on your face. You just whacked me down. Mordechai says, no, no, that pasuk's talking about another fellow Jew. When a fellow Jew, which happens to be your enemy or competition or whatever else, they, they make, they, they, you know, they slip, they fall, they, they fall from their status, never be happy. But by you, a goy, a Gentile, on the contrary, um, where is it over here? On the contrary, it says, No, rather, on them and on their altars, we should step and break down. And that's what I had as intention to, to do that for you. So, prior to, the Talmud says, prior to, Achash, uh, to Haman actually getting on the horse, he tells, he tells uh, Haman, I can't go. I'm not groomed properly. I need to get a haircut. So quickly, Esther, he had Esther close all the barbers in town and all of the other, um, how do we say, uh, spas, you know, bet, bet all the bathhouses. And Haman had to go and groom Mordechai and heat up water for him and bathe him and then get him dressed and bring him on. And Haman's face looked like he was completely downtrodden and very sad about this. So uh, Mordechai tells him, Haman, you don't look too happy. What's going on? You okay? Catch your breath? He goes, oh, so sad. What are you so sad about? He says, look at me. I'm the second to the king. I'm honored tremendously. And look what I have to do. I have to heat up water. I got to become a barber again. I got to carry you around. I got to be your footstool. Look at everything that's happening to me. So Mordechai looks at him and says, You imbecile! You wicked person! For 22 years you were the barber at such and such place! 
And you're so sad that you're cutting hair again? You know how to do this already. Wicked men, God's taking care of you. And he's punishing you for all the evil you planned against the Jews. And this is the, the story of how uh, Haman gets Mordechai on top of this horse. Eleventh verse. And Haman takes the garments and the and the and the horse and he dresses Mordechai as we just said. And he has him and he rides him throughout and carries him out throughout the whole year. And Haman is saying in front of him, the same words that he said. That, that should be said about himself, but he didn't know that he was going to do it for Mordechai. This is the way the king treats the, those who uh, need to be honored by the king for doing a, a great favor for the king. The Midrash tells us that, and we learned this previously, that uh, uh, Mordechai was, was um, paid back for the fact that he wore the sackcloth and ashes that he that he that he donned upon himself when the decree was set out of, of annihilation for the Jews and how was he paid back he was paid back to wear the garments of the king but he was not paid back for the fact that he ripped his own Mordechai's own garments remember we said because Mordechai was a descendant of Benjamin and Benjamin was the cause for the all the other tribes besides for himself to rip their garments when they found the goblet of Joseph in his package. And since all the other, um, even though it's indirect, but since all the other tribes ripped and, and Benjamin didn't rip at that moment, and it was the cause, it was Benjamin's cause that they ripped, the ripping of Mordechai was not paid back for. However, the fact that he donned sackcloth and ashes, he was paid back for, and he was paid back for right now when he... Um, was donning the king's clothes, and according to us, we learned the king's clothes that he was inaugurated and instituted as king in. The, the Talmud tells us that a very um, interesting story that when Haman was carrying Mordechai, meaning leading him in, in the, in the, in the, uh, by, by horse, Haman's daughter was standing at the balcony of their house and saw this taking place. She saw one man clothed in royal garments and another man pulling and carrying him. She thought to himself, wow, dad's really good. He left early this morning. He went to see the king, the wee hours of the morning. His, his intention was to have, Haman, uh, to have Mordechai hung. He probably is being led by Mordechai to get hung. And that the one sitting on the, on, the, on the horse is really my father. And Mordechai is the one leading him. So what'd she do? That nasty girl. She went to the restroom. She took the bucket of human waste. And she pours it on the person leading the, the, the horse. Thinking that that's Mordechai. At that moment, obviously Haman, that's like the top off his day. He's now having a great time. He looks up and sees who would ever do such a horrible thing. He sees his daughter. His daughter sees. His daughter sees that it's her father. She jumps off the balcony committing suicide. And that's how she ends her life on that day. 
which by the way is the same day that 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 Haman actually gets hung on by later on in the day. But we'll, we'll learn that in next in the next chapter. But that is what took place at that time. So commentaries ask one second, how could the daughter not realize that that's her father? Okay, maybe she couldn't conceptualize that someone else was being led, then <laughs> it should be her father that's on the horse. But at least his voice, he was calling out the whole time, Kacha, ya said, this is what should be done for the one who, who, who honored the king and the king wants to show him honor. Wouldn't, he, wouldn't she recognize his voice? So listen to this amazing answer. Haman's been doing this all morning. His voice is hoarse already, pardon the pun. His, he already lost his voice. And she couldn't even recognize his voice. She thought that that was Mordechai's voice. So she comes, she dumps the, the potty, she dumps the toilet on her father's face. And then out of embarrassment and regret, she jumps off and commits uh, suicide. So that's what was taking place at that moment. Moving on to verse 12. <laughs> now Mordechai, as the Talmud and Rashi both say, he goes back to his sackcloth and to fasting, and he goes right back to the gate of the king. The Talmud, not the Talmud, the Targum, the translation tells us that Mordechai went back to the Sanhedrin. He was head of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin sat at the gate of the king. He went back to his position at the Sanhedrin. The Mamloez says that Mordechai went back to the Jewish people, Vayashov Mordechai, he goes back. What was he going back to do? He was going back to tell the Jewish people not to stop in fasting and not to stop in their prayer and pleading to God. Because Mordechai knew in the back of his head that the king owes me something for saving his life almost five years ago. And he was never repaid. He was planning, maybe he was planning, and the Jewish people were thinking he was planning, that he would ask that from the king as a favor, as a repayment. But now he comes and tells them, I don't think I can ask that because he repaid me right now for the good that I did by saving his life, by having this honor parade uh, being led by, by, by Haman. So don't rely on me asking the king to save us because he owes me one. He doesn't owe me one anymore. He just repaid me and took care of me now. Rather, we need to rely solely on the salvation of God and we need to keep fasting and, and praying. And Haman is coming... Literally not happy, downtrodden, deflated, however you want to translate Nidchaf, he's coming back really wiped out back home, Avel, which means in mourning. Mourning for what? Mourning for the fact of his daughter that just died. Vachafui Rosh and covered with his face. What was he covered on his face? Pardon the, 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 the word, but he was completely covered in dung. He was covered in theses. From the, from the disposal that his daughter put on him. So he was really coming home, not looking good, not emotionally happy, not smelling good. He was really having the day of his life, or better yet, the last day of his life. And the Midrash tells us that he came home so deflated because now he was, as we said, he is going, he was digressing. Or sorry, he was regressing. He was now going from, again, being the greatest minister in, in the whole country, in the whole world, to going to be back a, a um, how, do you say, how do you say, a balan. He was a, a little, uh, how do we say, a cleaner of, of, the, of the bathhouse. He also became, went back to becoming a, a, a hairdresser. 
he went now to be a, a person carrying noble people instead of him carrying being the noble person being carried and he also became an announcer as he was announcing throughout the city what he what he was saying about the honor to to Mordechai so he really came back completely crushed now the last verse sorry the second to last verse verse 13 Vaisaper Haman and Haman tells to Lezer Shishto he tells his wife and to all of his loved ones, his friends, at Kolashakaro, everything that happened. So it's important to note that over here, it seems like they were waiting for him at home. Yesterday, in the previous chapter, sorry, in chapter f- 5, yes, in the previous chapter, we learned that when he came home, after he came back from the banquet, he quickly called. He sent messengers to call his wife and call his friends to tell them the great news. Here it's he's telling them, meaning they were waiting at home. The commentary says that everyone was waiting at home. Knew what did the king say? Are you hanging him or not? So, he, so they were expecting good news. He comes in smelling bad, looking bad, and giving them all of the unfortunate news. However, the, the terminology of Karahu, the Malbim says, he came in saying, guys, don't worry, my plan could still work. This was all a mikre, Karahu from the word mikre. This was all a chance. This was all fluke. This was all my bad luck that the same day that the, that the king reads in his diary to bless or to honor Mordechai was the day I came to ask him to hang him. But really, everything's in my favor and we're going to do good. And at that moment, everyone looks at him like, I don't think so, buddy. You don't look too good. And again, you don't smell too good. So uh, I don't think this is going to be a happy ending for you. And now his wise men, his advisors say, and his wife all tell him the following. But before we say that, it's important to note. A couple words ago, they're called, his advisors are called his loved ones. Now they're called his wise ones. What's going on? Well, the Talmud says, when he came in, they thought they were going to hear good news. They were still waiting to hear, and they were loving him, or really loving themselves, right? Because they wanted to be with his honor. However, now that he's given them bad news, they switch to a professional. They're chachamim. They're not, they're not, they're not friends. They're professional uh, advisors seeking counsel. They're not too close anymore. As the, as the Sfat Emet says, when they started saying... When he started saying all the bad things that happened, they quickly changed. They said, ah, this guy, we don't love him so much. They loved him because of his, of his great power and honor that he had. Now that his honor and his power is going down, we're not friends. It's unfortunately like a lot of relationships nowadays. People that you might have as friends may only be befriending you for something you have or something that you are, but not authentically for who you are. So that's something that we see as a, as a character trait that Haman's good-for-nothing advisors also had. The Midrash Talpiot says, very interesting. Last time around when he came home and he asked them what to do, who was the first one to pipe up? His wife. This time, who's the people who piped up? It was the Chachamim and then his wife. Why didn't she say anything anymore? Because she was a little smart. She was dumb, but she was a little smart. She said, wow, the advice I gave my husband yesterday really did him no good. To wake up early in the morning and go to the king, he had the worst morning of his life. I better not say anything because he might lash out at me. So he did not, she did not say anything. So what did, they, what did the advisor say? If Mordechai is a descendant of the Jews, that you already started falling down in front of him. 
לא תוכל לו, you have no chance, my friend. כי נפול תיפול לפניו. You are surely going to fall in front of him and he will defeat you. The Talmud says that they were telling him that if Mordechai was from one of the other tribes, then maybe you could have beat him. But, however, since he was a combination from the tribe of Judah as well as the tribe of Benjamin, which both of them were given special brachas, blessings by Yaakov at the end of their life, that they will rule over others, you have no chance. By Judah it says, Yadecha be'oref ayevecha, oyevecha, that your hand will be around the neck of your, of your, um, of your enemy. So meaning, unfortunately, you don't have a, a chance to beat him. And by Benjamin it says, Orerat kvorotecha, to awaken your, your, your strength. And again, since Mordechai was a combination of a descendant between Judah and Benjamin, you have no chance against him if he's Mizera HaYehudim, Yehudim from Judah's tribe. You have no chance. Now, because you started falling in front of him, the, the Talmud also says that why is there a need for a double terminology of falling? Napol tipol. Why can't it just be Napol lefanav? Or nafollo. Why, why double terminology of falling? So the Talmud explains that they were telling him that this, the, how do we say, the character of the Jewish people, the fact of how they operate, is when they soar, they are tremendously high. And when they fall, they are fall all the way to the bottom. They're either like the dust of the earth, it was like, it was like the blessing that Abraham, gave, uh, that, that Abraham received from God, that you're, they're going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth or the, and the stars of the, of the sky. That blessing was really... They're going to be numerous no matter what, but they're either going to be numerous and down all the way to the dust, to the, to the, to the sand of the earth, or they're going to be up and soaring up like the stars. So now you're going to go all the way down because if he's going to be soaring, you're going to be down and down all the way because he's going to be up all the way. The Gra says that they gave him, they told the quickly, these his advisors quickly told him, get rid of that tree you prepared for, Hama, for, for Mordechai. I don't think you're going to need it, and you don't want it available for any bad news, <clears throat> like them having to use it on you. Quickly, get, get rid of it. Now, Odam, last verse. Odam midabrimimo. While they were still in conversation and trying to, as the grass says, trying to convince him to get rid of that tree that he erected for him, who comes? The servants, the messengers of the king come. Hashem quickly sent, the grass says, Hashem quickly sent the messengers to come summon Haman because he wanted that very tree to not be pulled down to be the tree that Haman gets hung on, the one that he planned for Mordechai. They came, and they quickly in a haste bring Haman. Why in such a haste? Um, this comes, the Vayavhilu comes and teaches us that they were in such a rush because the king said, quickly bring them, bring Haman to me right away, so to, to the Mishte. So Vayavhilu, they quickly brought him in a haste to the Mishte, Laviet Haman, Ela Mishte, Asherasta Esther, quickly bring him to this, uh, to, the, to the banquet that Esther prepared for us. So this was all a, the beginning of, of the day, the last day of Haman's life, and stay tuned for next week for chapter 7, which is the the private banquet, the second private banquet, as well as the execution of Haman 
finally. Thank you for listening, and be sure to listen to more Torah Talks. Rabbi Laredo also has hundreds of Torah classes on YouTube, and more coming out daily. Go to youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Laredo.